Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our Bible study series on the life of Peter that we have subtitled From Fisherman to Follower of Jesus. And the title tonight is Feed My Sheep. And it comes as a quote from Jesus in our passage. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a little bit. We're, we're getting to kind of the middle of... Um, I won't say the middle of Peter's life, although that very well could be true. But to a really important um, mountain... That's not the right way to put it. Dividing point, put it that way. We've talked about Peter's life from the very first moment that he met Jesus and various things that have happened to him and he's said and done along the way, being a disciple of Jesus. We've talked about the fact that he's very impulsive, but he's very zealous, that he really loves Jesus. And in his impulsiveness and zeal in love, sometimes he does and says things right and does it great. And then sometimes he does and says things wrong and does it wrong with everything he's got. (laughs) And we're going to follow up on one of those wrongs tonight. Um, But... Uh, the passage we're looking at tonight is after the resurrection. And next week will be our last lesson uh, about Peter's life before Pentecost. And so the following one is about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming, and Peter becomes a totally changed man. And as we study the second half of Peter's life and encounters with Jesus and ministry, it's almost like we're studying a totally different person. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Peter's life, he is totally different. But we're right there in that middle place between the resurrection and Pentecost. And that's where we're at tonight. I want to jump in by uh, asking a couple questions, things that we deal with, that Peter's dealing with, so we can see a little bit more how this applies to us. How do we deal with failure? Now, I know you've never failed, but from other people you know who have failed. How do people deal with failures? A lot of different ways. What are some ways that people deal with failure? Take it as a learning experience. That's a great piece of advice. What did you say? Okay, they can get angry, angry at themselves or angry at other people, because sometimes people have a tendency, I know you've never done that, of blaming other people for their failures. All right. What are some other ways people respond to failure? Shut down. Give up. Why bother trying? I can't make it. All right. Any other ways that people respond? Can you think of any good ways? I mean, the first one was to treat it as a learning experience. Tony? Do it over again. Yeah, make it right. Try it again. Don't give up. You know, there's only a few things in life that you fail at that you can't try again, like parachuting and a couple others. <laughs> All right. You have some great results to failure. How do you think God feels about failure? Do you think he likes it when we fail? That's not that hard. Do you think God likes it when we fail, when we sin? No. Do you think he rejects us and gives up on us when we fail? No. So how do you think God would like us to respond to failure? Now, I'm not just talking about we did something wrong and so we got to do it over. We're talking about sin here. We're talking about something we shouldn't have done, whether we knew it ahead of time or not, but we've done something that's wrong, it's sinful, it's offended God. How do you think God wants us to respond to that? 
but very good. He wants us to repent, turn away from it, and learn from it. Anything, that, that summarizes it really good. Anything to add to that? Keep trying again. And you know, even though it's not God's plan, it's not what he wants for us, when we fail, we can actually come out stronger on the other side. Okay. Now, I can just tell you that having successful overcoming temptation can make us strong too. So we don't need to say, well, it's okay if I fail because I'll come out stronger on the other side. Well, you'll be a lot better off if you just stand your ground and, and don't fail to begin with. But there's hope after failure. Okay, And that's what we see in our story tonight with Peter. So a quick review. Not of everything we've studied about Peter, but Peter denied Jesus. Okay, the whole story around the fire, all that kind of thing. That's what we studied last lesson when I taught. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to it online. But he denied Jesus, but what made it even worse is that he had just got done boasting in front of all the disciples. Because Jesus had told all the disciples, you're going to fail me. You're going to run away. You're going to desert me. And Peter had just got done boasting in front of all the disciples. No matter what everybody else does, I will never fail you. So what's he saying with that? I'm better than the rest of these guys. I'm stronger than the rest of these guys. I love you more than the rest of these guys. Okay? Because they may fail you, but I never will. And then with less than 24 hours, he denies Jesus three times. And as we studied, wherever he is in that courtyard, there's an opening between him and Jesus because it says specifically that after he denied Jesus the third time, Jesus looked at him and their eyes met and his heart was broken. And it says that he went out and wept bitterly. The, 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 the uh, inclination, the connotation of that is that he was repentant. He was so sorry for what he had done. So then Jesus dies. He's crucified. He dies. He's buried. And then you have a resurrection morning, and the ladies go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. They find out he's resurrected. They go back to tell the disciples. And it says in John chapter 20, we're in 21 tonight, that John and Peter race to the tomb to check it out. John gets there first. He just glances in. Peter gets there second, and he steps in, and they see the cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in and the head cloth in a different place just laying there, and they're left wondering, what happened? There's an inclination that they're starting to believe. Maybe he did raise from the grave, whatever, okay? What's interesting is that even though we don't know the details, sometime that afternoon, Jesus appeared to Peter by himself. Two places that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 and Luke 24, it says specifically that Jesus had appeared and met with Peter. We don't have any idea what Jesus and Peter talked about or anything like that. But that very evening, Jesus appears to 10 of the disciples, Peter including in the upper room, and reveals himself to them so they know for sure he's 100% resurrected. He, he appears again a week later um, to them. And um, the thing that's really interesting is that Jesus is accommodating the disciples because we kind of read through it and we may pass over it, but in that initial message that the angel gives to the women, it basically says, Jesus is not here because he's not dead. He's risen from the grave. Go and tell the disciples, and Luke adds in that the angel says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. I like that point. Um, actually, I think it's Jesus that says that a little bit later. Um, wanting to know that Peter has not been rejected. But the angel has another part of the message to them. Does anybody remember? It's a trivia question. What else did the angel tell the ladies to tell to the disciples? Anybody remember? That Jesus would meet them where? In Galilee. 
told the lady, the angel first, and then as the ladies are going, Jesus appears to them, tells them the exact same thing. Go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm alive. Go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. So the disciples pack everything up and go to Galilee, right? No, they stay in Jerusalem. I can just picture Jesus like, okay, I'll just go to them there. They're not going to come to where I want them to go. Uh, so he appears to them that night. They're still in Jerusalem for a whole other week, even though Jesus has told them to go to Galilee. So he appears to them again. It's not recorded in the conversations of these two meetings. They're very, very brief, but I can't imagine Jesus. Listen, go to Galilee. I've got a purpose for you going there. But they finally go to Galilee. And that's where we pick up the story tonight. Okay? So they go to Galilee. Now, Jerusalem's in southern, in case you want to know, what's the big deal? Well, Jerusalem's in southern Israel. Galilee's way up in the north. We're talking 50, 60, 70 miles. All right? So it is a big deal. But Galilee is where they spent most of their time in ministry. So let's look here at John 21. We're going to read it bit by bit. And the first section is verses 1 to 3. It says, after this, okay, and this is talking about the first couple of times Jesus appeared to them. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same as the thing as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Why did they go fishing? They got, they went to Galilee. Why did they go fishing? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, so you know, if you're wondering, where's it at in the Scripture? It doesn't tell us. Why do you think they went fishing? What would you say, Lisa? Okay, they had been fishermen before. They'd left that to follow Jesus a couple of years before. It's what they knew. Why? What are some of the reasons why they may have gone fishing? They were bored? It could be. Okay, so they were. it's just what they decided to do, even though what? Okay, stay behind where and wait? Okay, well, they went to Galilee. That's what Jesus told them to do, so they did that. So for whatever reason, which we're talking about, Peter decided to go fishing, and the other one just said, I mean, Peter's been the leader all along, right? So they're doing whatever Peter says to do. Which, Joan, go ahead. Okay, maybe they think they had to make it on their own. They may have been hungry, and they know how to catch fish. Well, it's all speculation because the Bible doesn't say. Yeah, what were you going to say, Tim? Okay, so dealing with grief and confusion, because, I mean, grief, Jesus died, but he is resurrected, but yet it's confusing, and what does he want from them? You know what I'm saying? He's only met with them two times, so they're dealing with all this stuff. They don't really know what else to do. They go back to what's familiar. Now, if you dig deeply into this and all the Bible studies and commentaries and all the people and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's kind of equally divided about, well, did was Peter basically just going to go back to the life he knew? Because he thought maybe it was over, or were they just doing something while they're waiting on Jesus? That's kind of the way I lean, but that's just my opinion, and that's why I made this first section called Waiting on Jesus. Um, they did do what he said to do. He said, we're going to meet in Galilee. So they went to Galilee. We don't know how long they've been waiting, but they're waiting for Jesus to show up. Huh? Well, what difference does it make? Jesus can show up anywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, he did. So they're waiting for Jesus, right or wrong, whatever the motivation is. They're waiting for Jesus to show up because Jesus said, wait for me. and I'll meet you in Galilee. And so they went to Galilee and they're waiting. Okay. So anyway, you, you do all the study and stuff. Somebody say, well, they're just waiting for Jesus. Um, they enjoyed fishing. Maybe they were hungry. Maybe they've been waiting a couple days. They didn't have anything to eat. Well, let's go catch something to eat, you know. Um, it was something familiar. Maybe they needed money, and they could make money catching fish. Um, again, some say Peter was turning back to his old life, but we don't know that for sure. Now, this isn't the main point of this message, and certainly we can't draw an example from why they were waiting because we don't know for sure what they're, why, they're, uh, what, why they went back to fishing. But there are times in our lives where we're waiting on Jesus, isn't there? You know, Jesus has told us something. He's made us a promise. We've been praying about something. We're not seeing the results yet. So what should we do while we're waiting for Jesus? And the answer isn't fishing. Well, it can be for those of you men or maybe women who like to do that. But what should we do while we're waiting for Jesus? To fulfill a promise, to come through on something, to whatever. What should we do? Pray. Keep on serving him. Any other thoughts? Worship. Okay. I summarize it in this, and this is all we're going to spend on, because really the whole focus of next week's lesson is going to be on waiting on the promise of the Father. You know, they're going to be waiting for 10 days, okay? But they had more clear direction, but still we're going to talk about that next week. But I just put this as, put this. I think it's some practical advice. While waiting for Jesus, continue to do what you already know he wants you to do. Now, the whole fishing thing, we don't know how Jesus felt about that. But Jesus in this story never rebuked them for fishing. In fact, they have a very, very good encounter with Jesus. Okay, so he, he never seems to indicate in this story, you're doing the wrong thing by fishing or whatever. Okay, that's another reason why I happen to think that they were just doing that while they were waiting for whatever reason. Okay, but they did at least do the one thing he made very clear to them. He said, I will meet you in Galilee. So they went to Galilee. So for us, while we're waiting on Jesus, we need to do what we already know to do. Lynn, you're going to make a comment? Yeah, we're going to get to that next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, that's a great point for the next point. <laughs> no, very good, very good. That's true, that is true. So, um, before we get to that point, um, while waiting for Jesus, continue to do what you already know what he wants to do. How do we know what he wants us to do? We do the right thing. How do we know what the right thing is? What Jesus wants us to do. <laughs> That's kind of circular reasoning. For How do we know what the right thing is that Jesus wants us to do? His word. There you go. The simple answer. Yes, we obey him. We continue to walk with him. We continue to grow in our relationship. We may not have all of our questions answered. We don't know why he's not doing certain things we think he's supposed to do because he's promised it to us in his word or personally or whatever. But just keep doing what he's told you to do and, and, and pray and wait. Okay? Um, walk in obedience to his word, to his personal instructions. All right? Um, I, I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, those of you that have been in the military, maybe you know, I've heard that in the military, basically one of the rules is just follow the last given in, uh, order until you get a new one, all right? You just keep on doing what you were originally told to do until somebody tells you, somebody in authority tells you differently. And the same thing's true in a Christian law. Joan, you had your hand up. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
<laughs> and that's exactly where we're going. Number two, the second section, uh, section section of this story is Jesus provides for his followers, which he's been doing all along, and he still continues to do. Jesus provides for his followers. Starting in verse 4 and most of the rest of the passage, or at least a good chunk of it, going through verse 14. Um, so anyway, they went out to the boat, didn't catch anything, starting verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. How could they not know? Well, it's dawn. Maybe the sun was in their eyes. There could have been mist over the lake, which is not unusual. There was a distance of about a football field um, between them and Jesus. We don't know what Jesus was wearing. He could have had something on where it kind of shadowed over his face. A lot of different reasons why they didn't know it was Jesus yet. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which most Bible scholars believe that's talking about John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Quick note, this is the fourth time Jesus is revealed to somebody, but it's the third time he's revealed to the disciples together. The first time was to Mary Magdalene by herself. Okay. So, uh, as most of you probably realize, this is very, very similar to the miracle that happened at the beginning of Peter's walk with Jesus. And we talked about that a number of months ago in Luke chapter 5, and then I preached on it on a Sunday a couple of Sundays ago, okay, um, in our series on Luke. And at the very beginning of when Jesus calls Peter to leave the fishing, leave the nets, because he's going to make, her a fish, make him a fisher of men, that also was an episode where Jesus said, go out there and catch some fish. And Peter's like, we fished all night long, didn't catch anything. And I think that's one of the things that clued the disciples in. It's Jesus, because the circumstances are so similar, Okay. Now, just a couple of things about the details. It's interesting that it mentions they caught 153 fish. I mean, it's one of the few times that an exact number is used, and that's caused all kinds of people to speculate what does that mean and see all kinds of symbolism in it. And, and there was one uh, theory that was uh, widely held for a long time. Well, there's 153 species of fish, and there's 153 known nations at that time, and that was just representative that people from all nations would come to know Christ. I'm not saying that couldn't be true. It's just there's nothing in Scripture that says that that's what it was all about. You know, what we do know for sure, whatever theory, because there's all kinds of really symbolic that deal with, like that's 100 plus 50 plus 3, and 100 represents the fullness of the Gentiles, and 50 is part fullness of the Jews, and 3 represents the Trinity. I mean, people can get into all kinds of crazy ideas. But the one thing that is very, very clear here is that Jesus is in control. And because he's in control and he's providing, he has provided in abundance. And not only that, but the net didn't break. The net did start breaking in Luke chapter 5, but it didn't break this time because Jesus is fully and completely 
in control. I think it's just a detail given to emphasize the amount that Jesus abundantly supplied, and he took care of their needs. So anyway, he calls them in. They bring the, the fish in. He's already got some fish cooking. He says, bring some of your fish. Here's breakfast. And they have breakfast together, and they know for sure it's Jesus. Um, you know, being in this situation probably stirred a lot of memories for Peter, you know. Again, the situation is very, very similar to the, the story in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called him. So he's probably thinking back to that day when Jesus first called him and he left his occupation. He left his family. He left his boats. He left his nets. He left the fish on the beach. Great wealth he left to say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. But now, after following him, he's failed him. He's let him down. He's denied him three times. I don't know if you've thought about this, but they're sitting there at a campfire, charcoal fire where Jesus is roasting the fish. Well, the setting of where Jesus denied, I mean, where Peter denied Jesus was in a cold place where he was sitting around a fire. So very possibly as they're sitting there with the fire, Peter's thinking, yeah, I was sitting around a fire when I denied Jesus too. And they're in Galilee where so many things had happened in their ministry with Jesus. So all these memories are probably coming back, uh, coming flooding back to Peter. As I said, Jesus has already appeared to Peter. I would like to think that Jesus had already offered him forgiveness, um, but we don't know any of the details about that. But even if he has, he may still be wrestling with, am I useful to Jesus? Well, maybe he has forgiven me, but wh- what part do I play? I mean, how many times have we failed? Ask God to forgive us. We're assured of forgiveness, but we're still like, oh, where, where am I at with God? What, how does that affect, you know, what I'm doing and all that kind of stuff. So he's probably wrestling with all this stuff. I want to make a quick point, and it goes right along with what Lynn said a few moments ago, which is so true. Before we jump in to see what Peter does with Peter, what Jesus does with Peter in the rest of this story. And the main point I put on there for this particular section is a few minutes of work with Christ in control will accomplish more than a whole night of personal effort without him. Okay? In other words, when we let Jesus have control and we're doing what he wants us to do, he's directing us, he's guiding us, we will have so much more success. We will accomplish much more than if we just tried to do things our own way and our own strength. And it makes me think of what Jesus said in John 15, 5, when he talks about how he's the vine, we're the branches, we've got to stay connected, close relationship, and because of that we can bear fruit. But in John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this part of the story certainly illustrates that. Without Jesus' impact, influence, they caught nothing. But once Jesus got involved, abundance. Okay? Now we get down to the nitty-gritty of the spiritual aspect of what Jesus is doing in this story. Um, The third section of this story is Jesus restores Peter to himself. Talking about Jesus. Okay? Verses 15 to 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So what's going on here? What is Jesus trying to do? 
asking Peter these questions three times. Yeah, Jose. Jesus is using the process to express the forgiveness, to help him get rid of the shame. Yeah, and we're going to see in the next part of the story to restore him to a place of ministry and leadership. Okay, yeah. Um, Jesus is trying to restore Peter, restore him to his relationship with himself first. Okay, I find it very interesting. I don't think it's making too much of a tiny detail, but in this story, you know, all along, you know, Peter was born Simon, named Simon when he was born. When he first meets Jesus, he says, you'll be called Peter, which means a rock, because you're going to be a foundation, you're going to be solid, and there are things throughout the ministry that that's emphasized, especially when Peter says, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, you're right, and upon this rock I will build my church, and you're going to have authority, and this, that, and the other. And in this story, up until Jesus speaks, it talks about Simon Peter and Peter and Simon Peter. But when Jesus talks to me, he says, Simon. He doesn't say Simon Peter. He doesn't say Peter. I happen to think the reason he says that is because Peter's not being that rock that Jesus said he was going to be. And he wants to restore him back to being that rock. Okay? Now, when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? What is the these he's talking about? Does Peter love him more than what? Does he love him more than the other disciples? Okay. So is he saying, uh, do you love me more than you love these other men? Do you love me more than this world, your occupation, the fishing, the nets, all this stuff? What else could he be asking if he loves him more than? More than his life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. So when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? There's three, really three possibilities. He would say, do you love me more than these men? You know, do you love me more than you love these men? That doesn't seem likely because there's not been anything in the context or, you know, about Jesus, about Peter and his love for the people around him. You know, Jesus taught many times we should love one another, but that's not really part of the story. So I don't think that's it. Some say, well, he's asking Peter, do you love me more than you love the fishing? You went fishing, you know, I, Told you to wait for me. Again, not saying that's right or wrong, but do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than your past life? Are you still willing to follow me? And whether or not that's what Jesus means, that certainly has a big lesson for us. Do we love Jesus more than our occupation? Do we love Jesus more than the material things of our lives? You know, I think what he's talking about, and most Bible scholars, is that do you love me more than these love these men love me? And I think it's a reference back to Jesus' boast. I mean, to, I keep saying Jesus for Peter and Peter for Jesus. Okay, I think it's a reference back to Peter's boast before all the disciples. I will never deny you. Though all these guys do, I never will. Implying, I'm more committed to you. I'm stronger than they are. I'm better than they are. I love you more. So I think Jesus is saying, okay, now, Peter, after what you've been through, do you love me more than these men? And you can see Peter's learned his lesson because he doesn't compare himself to them. He doesn't say, no, I don't love you as much as they do. Neither does he say, yeah, I still love you more than they do. He doesn't say, oh, maybe we're about on the same level. He just says, Lord, I love you. I don't want to compare myself to anybody else anymore. And I'm putting words in his mouth. Maybe not exactly. I'm not going to compare myself. You ask me if I love you more than these men do. I don't even compare myself. I just know that I do love you. Jesus, I love you. You know you know, you know all things. He mentions that every time. You know, you know I love you. Okay? Now, what's really interesting is 
that we don't know whether the other disciples are with them when Jesus asks this question of Peter. Most often it's portrayed that they're alone, they're walking along the beach, because later in the story they are walking alone. But we don't know where the transition is. Right before this, they're all together having breakfast. And then it just says, Jesus turns to Peter. So if by some chance they haven't yet started walking along the beach, they're still all together that there could be another aspect to this, that Jesus is asking Peter this in front of all the other disciples, not to embarrass him or to shame him even more, but to let the disciples know that he's forgiven Peter and that Peter's still important and he still has a role for Peter to play. And maybe an accountability thing. You, didn't, you, know, you boasted in front of all these disciples. They all know you failed me, but now you can have your confession in front of them too. So... Anyway, Peter's response indicates that there's a willingness to acknowledge his love for Jesus without comparing himself to others when he, as he did when he was bragging of his loyalty. I put this point on there for us. We need to stop comparing ourselves to others. You know, that's in every area, but especially this kind of thing. You know, the bad thing about comparing ourselves to others, it always leads us one of two wrong directions. When we compare ourselves to others, we can always find somebody who's doing it better, who is better, whatever, and it makes us feel bad. We can always find somebody which we're more tendency, have more of a tendency to lead, who isn't doing it near as good as we are or whatever, so it makes us feel really good and it leads us to pride. We don't need to compare ourselves to others. We need to compare ourselves to God's word, to his call in our life, to his gifting in our life, to what he desires us to do in our own personal relationship with him. So we need to stop comparing ourselves to others. So why did Jesus ask three times? Well, obviously, it corresponds to Jesus' threefold denial. Uh, It seems to be Peter's number. Later in Acts, we'll see this much later on as we go through his life, that God gives uh, Peter a great revelation that this salvation is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the Gentiles too. And to convince Peter that's true, he has to give him a vision three times. Um, I think that was specifically... So that Peter would know this vision is from God. I mean, because three is my number. <laughs> All right. And uh, so anyway. Um, but anyway, as I said, if this conversation takes place in the presence of the other disciples, they'd be reassured of Jesus' call in Peter's life and that Peter still has an important role to play. That leads us to the fourth section of the story. Peter restores. I'm sorry. I keep doing that. Jesus restores Peter to usefulness. How many of you know you can ask for forgiveness and feel forgiven but still wonder, can God still use me or can he still use me in the same way? Can he still? Now, now let me be very quick to say that there are certain sinful activities that we can get involved in that will disqualify us from certain aspects of usefulness in God's kingdom. But it never will eliminate our total usefulness, usefulness for God. Okay? All right. But Jesus restores Peter to usefulness. The same passage, so I won't reread it. Okay? But... The whole thing, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response, yes, I do, you know. And what does Jesus respond? He says three very similar things. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Lambs are sheep, sheep are, you know, lambs are sheep. Sheep can be lambs or older ones. And feeding, tending, two different ideas. Feeding, giving sustenance, but tending includes feeding, but also means leading them, taking care of them, protecting them. All right? So Jesus is now giving Peter a new commission. What was Jesus' first challenge to Peter that he was calling him to do? He says, leave your nets and boats and I will make you fishers of men, which means what? 
preaching the gospel, bringing people to Jesus. Now he says, I'm going to make you a shepherd. Different connotation. The word pastor comes from the same word as shepherd. It means to care for. I've got on your note sheet 1 Peter 5, 1-4. You can read that later, but it's really interesting to read that in connection with this story because this is Peter's instructions to other shepherds. And he doesn't say, like, I'm over you. He just says, as a fellow shepherd, this is how we got to take care of God's flock. Okay? So he gives him a new commission. He's now a shepherd besides being a fisher of men. He's not saying you don't have to be a fisher of men anymore. Now you're going to be a shepherd. He's adding more to it. Okay? And so these words that are used here means to feed and to care for, to guide, to protect. And this follows a theme all throughout the Bible. Very early on in the Old Testament, God is pictured as a shepherd of his people. That picture is used all through Scripture. And then God tells his leaders to be shepherds over the people. And he judges them and evaluates on them on whether they're good shepherds or not. And there's times that they are good shepherds. But there's a lot of examples in the prophets where God uh, rebukes the spiritual religious leaders of the nation and even the kings saying, you are not being good shepherds. I mean, you're taking care of the sheep so you can eat them. <laughs> you're taking care of the sheep only because of the money you can make off their wool. You're taking care of the sheep only because of what you can benefit from them. You know, and he, he says judgment's coming because you're not being good shepherds. And then, of course, in the Gospel of John, the greatest example is that Jesus is the great shepherd. And so now Peter's being called, and through Peter, you know, the other disciples too, to follow in that tradition to be those who would care. Now, this is very, very important. It's easy to read over it. Whose sheep is Peter to care for? What? Christ. Jesus is God's. You know, Jesus doesn't say, tend the sheep, tend your sheep. He says, care for my sheep. That's something we all need to keep in mind, especially those of us who are in leadership. But to be honest with you, as we're going to see before we get done tonight, we're all in positions to care for other sheep. But we've got to keep in mind that they're God's sheep. You know, as the pastor of this church, it's our elders, anybody in leadership, anybody involved in ministry, the people we are ministering to, one another as we minister to one another, we've got to keep in mind this is a responsibility we have, but it's God's sheep. And so we need to keep, that should really influence on how we care for them. All right? One thing I think was really neat this, that this story illustrates is that Peter now has humility. He's aware of his sin. And sometimes the devil will want to use that to think we're disqualified from ministry to disqualified from usefulness to be disqualified from leadership. But those are actually prerequisites for all those things. If we don't have humility, if we don't have an awareness of our shortcomings, of our weaknesses, of our failings, and of our sins, we're not qualified to lead. So that's a good thing. A couple of points I drew from here. I got them on your note sheet. Number one, evangelism and discipleship are both equally important. Evangelism is the fishing for men. It's reaching people for Jesus, telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus so that hopefully they will respond to come to know Jesus. Discipleship being the pastoring, the caring, the encouraging to help each other, to help those under our leadership and under our uh, ministry to grow stronger. Okay, Both are equally important. You know, what good would it be to win the lost if there's no opportunity, no environment in which they can grow? 
You know, it'd be sort of like giving birth to a baby and then saying, going out into the world. <laughs> you know, you got to take care of them. That's why there should be a, an equal emphasis in our lives, in our ministry, in our ministries of the church of reaching out, drawing in as a church, but as individuals and families, but also pouring into the ones that are already saved. You know, Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make converts. Well, to make a disciple, they first have to be a convert. So you do need to make converts, but then you need to build on that. You need to follow up with that to continue to help them to grow and to develop. Now, who should do this evangelism and discipleship? All of us. You know, we are all called to reach people for Jesus, reach out to people to share the gospel. We're all called to encourage and challenge and nurture and help each other. But there are some that God calls to do that as an occupation, as a full-time thing, whatever. That's why there are pastors, teachers, missionaries, all that kind of stuff. But we can't just say, well, that's up for the pastors to do. That's just, up, that's just for the deacons to do. That's just for the elders to do. That's for my Sunday school teacher to do. No, we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to encourage and challenge one another. But there are those that God calls to do uh, as an occupation, as a ministry, whatever. Okay. The second point I drew from that that I put on your note sheet, true love results in action. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes. If you really love me, you're going to do something. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to do what I want you to do. You're going to take care of, you know, Christians. You know, you're going to help them. You're going to uh, take care of the sheep. It goes to a theme that we see all through Scripture, that if you really love God, you're going to obey him. You're going to do what he wants you to do. John 14, 15, I have on your note sheet there, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James said, I didn't put on your note sheet, faith without works is dead. You know, John even says in 1 John, if you say you love Jesus, but you're not doing what he wants, you're lying. So true love results in action. I came across this quote when I was studying for this lesson. I like it. It says, we can prove that we love Jesus only by loving others. I like that. The fifth section of six is Jesus reveals his plan for Peter. Now, I don't mean by that everything about his plan, but certain aspects of his plan. Look at verse 18. After he's challenged him three times, do you love me, feed my sheep, whatever. Verse 18 says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted, and when you are old, or but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So he reveals his plan. I mean, part of the plan is take care of the sheep, but he reveals the end of his plan. I guess he says, one day, this seems to indicate you'll be crucified. Okay, so where does it say that? Well, it says you will stretch out your hands. That was a technical term or a colloquial term that was used for people that were stretched out and either tied, because sometimes they were just tied, not nailed, but tied or nailed to a cross. And so Jesus makes it very, very clear. You've got a responsibility. And when you were young, you could do whatever you wanted to do. You know, you got all the strength, you got all the freedom, mobility, whatever you can do, whatever you want to do. But when you're old, something's going to happen you don't like. You stretch out your hands, you know. And the implication is that you'll be crucified. And, you know, we see that in our own lives because Jesus told all his disciples that if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. Willingness, whatever 
comes our way to handle it and to bear it for Jesus' sake. On your note sheet, I put, if we are to follow Christ, we must take up the cross. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified in Rome. But can you imagine? Jesus is restoring Peter. He's letting know he really is forgiven. But not only that, but he is useful. He does have a plan for him. He's going to be in leadership. He's got a significant thing to do. And by the way, when you're done, you're going to be crucified. Can you imagine entering into ministry knowing that at some point, and you don't know when, the events of your life are going to lead to crucifixion? Now, church history and, and what we see in the Bible says shows us about 30 years later before he's crucified. But you can imagine that not necessarily every moment, because you may can feel safe, but just knowing that down the road, just around the bend, next week, next month, next year, I might be crucified. But you know, in all reality, that was true for all the disciples. When they first followed Jesus, when things started heating up, any one of them could have been crucified at any time if God had so chosen that that was how they're going to end their life at that time. And tradition tells us that all the disciples, except for John, did give their lives for their faith. In fact, we're going to look at a situation in Peter's life later in Acts chapter 12 where he's arrested and he's in jail. He has every reason to believe he's going to be put to death the next morning because James had been arrested shortly before that and he was put to death. But God says, I've got more work for him to do, so he sends an angel to deliver him. That's a whole other story. But the point is, is that Peter doesn't know how much longer he's got to live, but he chooses, I'm going to be faithful to God today. I should have put that on there for an important point. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, Lynn. That's right. None of us know how long we're going to live, how we're going to die, when we're going to die. We're just called to do the same, to be faithful today. All right, let's wrap this up because it's getting close to the end here. The last section is Jesus challenges Peter to focus on his path, not somebody else's. Starting at verse 20. So after Jesus, oh, and by the way, Jesus wrapped it up by saying, follow me. And that's the tense of that verb is keep on following me. All right, you know, Jesus started everything out with Peter by saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I think this is a way of reaffirming. I still want you to follow me. You still got your place. You still got things to do. Okay, now, right after that, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Again, most Bible scholars believe he's talking about John. Good reasons for that. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is this going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? Um, most people believe that the reason, one of the reasons this part of the story is in here is that there's been this rumor that is circulated in the church. Well, Jesus is going to come back so soon. Let's keep an eye on John. You know, Jesus is coming back before John dies. And that he was very concerned that if Jesus didn't come back before he died, that once he died, whether he was killed or died of old age, that too many people would lose their faith. And so he put that in the story so they would know that's not what Jesus said. He just says, if that's what I want, okay? So anyway, but the point is, Peter is being Peter all over again. He's having this great conversation with Jesus, and he says, well, what about him? It's like totally sidetracked. I think Peter must have been ADHD, at least ADD. I don't know, you know, but uh, what about him? And basically what Jesus says is, mind your own business. It's none of your business, Okay. Uh, I put on your note sheet here, if we are to follow Christ, we must keep our eyes on him alone. 
goes back to us comparing ourselves to others, but also being overly concerned with others. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, please understand, this does not mean that we have no responsibility to watch out for one another, to encourage one another, and sometimes to lovingly, gently, tactfully, at the leading of the Holy Spirit, to correct one another. This is not talking about holding one another accountable. It's talking about being so caught up in somebody else's life that you're not keeping your own life where it needs to be, okay? Um, we still need to encourage, love, support, and even correct at times, but the path of another person's life is between them and the Lord, okay? So on your note sheet, I have this. Don't get sidetracked from your walk with Christ by focusing on others. It's none of our business how Jesus leads his other workers. Our business is to follow Christ ourselves and obey him. So there's a lot we can learn from this chapter about dealing with failure. You know, if Peter hadn't dealt with this failure right, we may not have heard about him after this episode. He may not have been the leader in Acts. Now, obviously, that was God's plan. Peter did respond right. So we're going to keep studying him into the near future, okay? But the good news here is our God is a God of second chances. And the last thing on your note sheet that I love about this passage, your life does not need to be defined by your failures, you know, when we think of Peter, you know, when we first started this days, well, when you think of Peter, what do you think of? Well, yeah, we remember the mistakes he made. But what's the overarching theme of his life? He was a great man of God. And he came back from his failures, and he got up and tried again. And God powerfully used him. You do not need to be defined by your failures unless you choose to be. You've got to deal with them. You need to repent of the sinful ones. Make changes. Follow Jesus, do what he's called you to do, but you do not have to be defined by your failures. I like the statement that says that failures are not people, they're events. Sometimes people think that they're failures. You're not a failure. You may have failed in some area, but you are not a failure. We don't have to be defined by our failures. Well, we've gone over. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the time we've had in your word tonight. Again, studying an episode in Peter's life. Lord, we thank you that we can so relate to Peter. We get things right sometimes, we get things wrong sometimes. And when we get them wrong sometimes, we get them really wrong. But so did Peter. And you forgave him when he repented. And you restored him and you used him. In the same way, continue to use us, Lord. Help us to be good shepherds. And Lord, not just us in leadership, but each of us as we love one another and seek to encourage one another and challenge one another and hold each other lovingly accountable. Help us to be good shepherds and help us to remember we're doing it for your sheep. Help us to be good fishers of men, too, Lord. That wasn't the point tonight, but, Lord, that's the first part of it. Help us to tell other people about you and reach out to them in your name. And, Father, we thank you that you will do that and that you do bring forgiveness. And you don't allow our lives to be defined by failure. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, 
Go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 